you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of 1 John. This evening we will be looking at chapter 3, verses 19 to 24. For our guests that are with us from Covenant and Southwest, you don't have the particular benefit. We have been going uh, week by week through the book of 1 John in our expositional series. But this is very easily a text that stands on its own and is encouragement to us in the faith. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's Word. The Word of the Lord is completely without error. The Word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the Word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 1 John chapter 3, beginning at verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He in them. And by this we know that He abides in us, by the Spirit whom He has given us. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it to our lives. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we pray, O Lord, that you would deal with us according to our weakness and infirmities. We pray, O Lord, especially as we doubt and have difficulties, that you would encourage us, that you would point us to the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would point us to the power of your Spirit, O great Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray even now this evening that your word would go forth with power and your people would be changed. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. It is a truth that we do not like to speak out loud. It is a truth that we are often afraid of. We don't want to speak to others, especially in the church, about. Because somehow, we believe it will show us as weak. Somehow, we believe it will show us as those who shouldn't even be in the church in the first place. It's the truth that we need to be aware of that at times, Christians have doubts. This can happen for any number of reasons. Some of us have just a melancholy disposition. We're used to always seeing the glass half empty rather than half full. And so we're just not quite so sure that everything is going the way it should. Some of us have doubts that are brought on by poor health. Health challenges are especially difficult. It's hard to think straight. It's hard to see the sun when it is blocked out by clouds. 
Some of us have doubts that are brought on by hard circumstances, things we never thought we would face, circumstances in our job, in our families, in our extended families. We wonder why we are going through these things, and oftentimes it can cast a doubt upon our relationship with the Lord. Finally, there are times in which each of us struggles with sin, especially with a particular sin. And when that sin seems to wrap around us so tightly that it is hard to breathe, we can doubt our faith, our relationship with the Lord. And this can actually be exacerbated. It can be made worse by proper teaching in the church. Because you see, one of the things that the church always has to be on guard against is presumption. The notion that if you simply warm a seat in a pew, you are born again. The notion that if you have a knick-knack in your house or something in your car that has Jesus' name on it, you have possessed true faith. And so there are times in which we must combat this and to show fellow believers that they must close with Christ. They must trust the Lord Jesus Christ. There must be a vital relationship with Jesus. This is, ironically, exactly what the Apostle John has been doing in the first two and a half chapters of this book. He has been combating error, error of those who say they know the Lord better than John, better than the church. They found a better way to come to faith and to be saved. And so as John has been combating them, he's laid out various tests of what it means to be a Christian. There is a test of moral righteousness that Christians live a life in accordance with their profession. There's a test of truth that Christians understand and love the truth of God's word. And there there is the test of love. We have looked at that recently, that what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to love, especially to love one another. And you see, as John keeps laying these things in front of us, it is so easy for us to see that we fall short. That we do not love as we ought. That we do not know God's word as we ought. That we do not act as we ought in every situation. And when we fall short, doubts can arise in our hearts. And that's why here in this passage, John seems to interrupt the flow of his thought. He's been talking about love and the test of love, and he will, in the next chapter, talk about a test of the spirits, but he stops here and pauses. It's almost as if he's preaching, and he's really bringing it, and he sees some tears in the the crowd. He sees some perplexed faces, and he wants to stop and assure them of their relationship with Christ. He goes into a discourse here on assurance. And what John does is he treats this as a real and an important subject. And if the Apostle John treats it that way, then we ought to as well. We need to understand that we need to deal with doubt. And the first way that we deal with doubt is we have to deal with what John calls a condemning heart. A heart that condemns us. We see this in verses 19 and 20. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart 
And he knows everything. And so what John begins in assuring us is he begins in a very practical way. He begins with an assurance from God's work in us and in our lives. A work that brings forth love in our lives. And you see, this is important for you and for me because this is often the cause of the problem. I would encourage you in the next few weeks to try an experiment. That if you mentally and volitionally commit yourself to loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, as you ought, to notice and take note of an increased amount of attacks from the enemy. Because the enemy hates and seeks to sow discord. And so ironically, our commitment to love causes us to come under greater attack from the enemy, to stir up doubts in our lives. Whenever we take love seriously, that's when Satan attacks. Satan doesn't need to be bothered with a people or a church that are lackadaisical in their love that don't care for one another, that don't go out of the way for each other. But you see, John knows that we need encouragement in especially those times. And he begins in verse 19 with this little phrase, by this. Now those of you that were not with us when we looked at the previous passage would ask, what does John mean when he says, by this? Well, by this, John means all of verses 11 through 18. It is the test of love. It is the call to love one another. And John has told us that love is very much not a feeling. That is predominantly the view of our society and culture today. It is the reason that people can talk about falling in and out of love. You see, John says, love is not a feeling, but it is first and foremost in its essence, self-sacrifice. He says this in verse 16. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And he takes it to a more uncomfortable level. And we ought to lay down our lives. By definition, love is self-sacrifice. There are many, many times, I imagine, for many of you who are especially new mothers or mothers of young children, that you don't really feel all warm and fuzzy about your children. As you step on their toys, as you see their messes, as you hear their loud anger and arguing. And yet, what mother would not sacrifice her life for her child? You see, it's not about the feeling in the moment. It's about the commitment and the relationship that we have. This is what love is for the Christian As well, John also tells us that love is real and concrete in action. Look with me at verse 18. He says, little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and truth. If you're going to talk the talk, John says, you have to walk the walk, because that's what counts. And so now what John says is, by this By love, by this concrete, self-sacrificial, committed love, we will know that we are of the truth. And we will be reassured in this. Now, I find it very interesting that John says that the way you fix a problem of the heart is with your mind. 
Do you see this? Our hearts are what need reassurance. And the way our hearts are reassured is by us knowing, by us thinking, by us using our mind to understand this. John says this is the thing we ought to do even before we go to prayer. Prayer will come later. John actually says you need to start by thinking about the truth, thinking about God's word. It's not a blind leap to know that we belong to the Lord. It is a thoughtful, well-heeled collection of the evidence around us that causes us to know. It is this knowledge that leads to reassurance. It is the knowledge of love that reassures us. Or another way of translating this word reassure is it convinces us. It persuades us that this is true. And this is what stands up to our great fears. Because you see, when we have this mind in us, when we see the love of Christ in our life, when we know that our hearts are reassured, then we are confident to stand before the Lord. We can be reassured, John says, before Him. You see, this is where doubt really grips us in fear. If we ever think that somehow we have missed it, perhaps you've had moments, maybe fleeting, where you wonder to yourself, have I really understood the truth of the Bible? Have I, have I really trusted Jesus enough? Have I really shown that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ? And if you dwell on that too long, a panic can set in as you see yourself coming before the throne room of God and knowing that judgment will come, knowing that God sees all things and that He is of pure holiness. You see, what John says is, if we understand the truth and we know by love, then we are not afraid to go stand before the King of Kings. The doubts melt away, even in the highest stakes, as it were. You see, what John tells us is we are not to look at our failures, which so doubt in us. After all, we have many of them, don't we? If you just tried to focus upon the ways in which you failed today, you would be miserable. You see, that's where the enemy wants to point you. And John says, no, we don't look at our failures. What we do is we look at the specific acts of love that the Lord has led us to. And that is a reassurance for us. This is the power of a mind that is sanctified by God's truth. The second way in which God tells us to deal with a condemning heart is to realize that God is greater You see, initially, our first efforts to think about our faith are often self-reflective and, in that sense, destructive. We think about ourselves according to our own standards. Now, for unbelievers, for those who have not professed faith in Christ, for those who do not think they need any help from God, this is especially dangerous because that kind of self-reflection says, well, I'm okay. I don't need to change. I don't need any help. I don't need the Lord. 
But even for the believer, it can be dangerous because it can be self-condemning because often what comes to our mind are the ways in which we fall short. Because after all, who better than the believer in Christ to understand his need and his sin? Who better than the believer in Christ to understand that he needs grace to make it through a single day? And we only need grace because we know we are incapable. And the believer knows God's law. He knows how broad and how deep it is. He knows how it touches upon all of the things of our lives. The believer knows that we cannot circumscribe it. We cannot make it easy to obey. That all of our thoughts, all of our words, all of our deeds are judged by God. And all of these things often push us to condemn ourselves by our own standard. Our hearts will condemn us. And in this sense, our hearts get plenty of help from the enemy of our soul. He is more than willing to cheer us on in self-condemnation. He's more than willing to whisper in our ear and start us on a spiral downward. We get more than enough help from a sinful world. Which tells us that any attempt to worry about these things is a waste of time. That the Bible is not true That we don't need to be so obsessed with these things that we ought to live and let live. And we get assistance even from our own longing to be holy. Are you conscious today that you are not what you should be? Are you conscious today that you are not what you will be? You see, if you are aware of this, the tendency of our hearts is to condemn us. But John says we have something that is far more important to us. And that is the judgment of God. Because God knows you better than you know yourself. Do you see this? For whenever, at any occasion, our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. God knows everything. He knows all the barriers to our obedience. He knows all our words, all our thoughts, and yet knowing all of that, He still acquits us of that charge of guilt. He still pronounces us righteous in Jesus Christ. And so Christian, you could sit down all day and write down all of the reasons why you should be condemned. And God would say, you don't know the half of them. And yet, you are mine. So don't spend more time trying to find the other half of the reasons. Trust that God knows. And that He has spoken in Christ. You see, we thought we knew who we were. And we thought we knew what we needed before we came to Christ. But God knew better, didn't He? And that has brought about the change in us. God hasn't changed when we have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the same God. He knows us better than we know ourselves. So when the enemy whispers in your ear, speak back to him. Say, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for me, who can be against me? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for me. How will he not also with him graciously give me all things? Who can bring any charge against me? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed right now intercedes for me. This is the truth of God's word applied to our hearts. And if we understand this, a second thing then begins to happen. We begin to have a confidence before God. We see this in verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. Notice what John does, even in his small transitions. He's speaking to people who are doubting. And notice how he addresses us. Dear friends, beloved, if you know from what I've just said that your heart does not condemn you, then you know now that you have confidence. And what does this confidence mean? It is first and foremost access to God the Father. Now, getting beyond condemnation is important. It does not mean that you cannot be saved if you are not assured of your salvation. But it does hamper the Christian life. You see, if we don't have this kind of confidence, we begin to live tentatively. Now, some of you have seen this in color, as it were, in watching sporting events. Have you ever watched someone who played with reckless abandon? who did things that you, weren't, you did not think were possible on the field of sports. And then something happens to that person. They get hurt. They blow out a knee. They hurt a shoulder. They break a hand. And then they come back, and what does everyone say? Well, he doesn't look like himself. He looks like he's holding back. He looks like he's afraid of getting hurt. He's not doing what he was made to do. And you see, that's how we can live the Christian life. Tentatively, concerned about where we're going. Concerned about if God will hear us. If we can go to him. When we have a lack of assurance, we're always worried that our next step may be our last. But you see, John says, when we have assurance, we can live with that kind of holy recklessness. Completely dependent upon the living God. In the same way... That a child treats a father's game. Have you ever wondered why a toddler will allow his father to toss him up in the air? And dad may toss the child two feet in the air. To mom it seems like 45 feet. And when you stop, what does the child say? More! More! Not stop, I'm scared. More! More! You see, that is the way we are meant to live before the Lord. With a recklessness, not because we are foolish, but because we have complete trust in our Heavenly Father. And you see, we should not see this kind of doubt that creeps into our hearts as beneficial. Because the first advantage of an uncondemning heart is access to God. We have confidence to come before God. And primarily this is access to the Father. We have confidence before God, John says. And this confidence could also be translated a boldness. There is a boldness in how we come to approach God. And this is what it means to truly enjoy the blessings 
of being a Christian. You know, this word boldness, confidence in verse 21 actually began as a description of the right of a citizen, a free citizen of a state, to speak his mind freely. It was a right he had because he was established. He did not need to fear what he said. This is the kind of boldness that comes to us that, as we know we have a relationship with the Father. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 3. In Christ we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. It's the difference between the way a son comes to a father and the accused comes to a judge. Let us then with confidence, Hebrews says, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus Christ, we come to the Lord our God with no fear and with no shame. We are confident in our access. And that confidence and boldness extends then, John says, to our prayer life. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. The confidence we have before God, leads to a particular confidence. And it's not just a confidence in asking, it's a confidence that we will be answered and we will receive. There is an expectation that when we ask, we will be heard. And we will be answered. Jesus puts it this way, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg will give him a scorpion. You see, we go to our Heavenly Father with confidence and boldness, knowing that our relationship with Him is secure and that He will answer our prayers. Now, think about this statement. Don't blunt it immediately in your mind. Whatever we ask, we receive from Him. It's not just that some of us who ask will be heard. It's not just that some of us will be answered. But in every instance, for every Christian who meets the conditions that John lays out here, he will be heard and answered. Now the conditions that John gives are indispensable. He says, we will receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Now this is not some kind of meritorious magic trick. That if we just obey God for a month, we can ask for something. And if we obey Him for six months, we can ask for something bigger. That's not what John is saying. What John is saying is, if we reflect in our lives what Jesus, in His prayer life, operated upon, then we can expect to be heard. Because we are in Christ, and Christ makes sure that our prayers are heard. You see, these conditions are evidence of one who is not condemned truly. We keep His commandments. We know the law of the Lord and we long to see it in our lives. We want to do what pleases Him. One commentator puts it this way, that doing what pleases God is a desire to do what pleases Him even when we don't have a command to do that. 
If that doesn't describe the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, I don't know what does. Because you see, that is what prayer is. We need to move away from the notion that prayer is some kind of cosmic vending machine. That we put in prayers and God gives us stuff. Whether it is things or health. No. What prayer is about is subjecting our will to God's will. We don't think about prayer as getting what we want. We think about prayer as something that makes us more like Jesus. In the way that He prayed. It's about needing help from the Father in order that we might do His will. This is what it means. And this is the boldness that comes to us in our life and in our prayer life. The third and final thing we see in our text this evening is that there is a certainty that is found. We see this in verses 23 and 24. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. The first certainty that we find comes from our faith itself. Now, what does it mean to obey God's commands? I think for most of us, the very place that we would begin would be to make a list. We might start with the list of the Ten Commandments. If we were very studious and we had a copy of Calvin's Harmony, we could find every law in the rest of the Pentateuch that comes under each of the other commandments. We would search the New Testament for ways in which we are to obey God. Because the thing is, we think we can find certainty in the details of the list. After all, that's often how it works practically in our lives. We don't want to forget something. We don't want to leave something undone. So what do we do? We make a list. But the interesting thing is, is that there is a specificity to the commandment. John tells us what this means. He says the commandment is to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another. The specificity of the commandment is twofold. To believe upon Jesus and to love one another. Now, believing is something that we must do at the outset. When they came to our Lord and said, what must we do to be doing the works of God? In John chapter 6, Jesus answered and He said, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. If we do not begin there, we have not begun. There is nowhere to go. John makes this clear to us even in his use of language. The verb believe is a past tense, punctuated in time verb. It is a starting point from which we launch off. Without that starting point, we are nowhere. It's what Paul writes in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. No other works. No other conditions. We know that a person is not justified, Paul says, by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith. You see, believing changes us. And then, we are marked by love. 
This is why when Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment is, He answers that the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, this is the sum of the life of faith. And this is where we can find assurance in faith that changes us and makes us a people of love. This is what I believe Paul is saying directly in Galatians chapter 5 when he says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. For a true faith changes us. And as John says, it brings in us a love for God's people. And we can gain a certainty about our relationship with the Father by looking at our faith. There is another way that we can gain certainty. And that is from God's Spirit. We gain a certainty in living the life of faith that God gives us by His Spirit. Do you realize, beloved, that you are never on your own? It is never up to you to work. Even when God clearly commands in His Word things that you must do, including loving one another, you are not left to your own devices. You see, the very fact that we keep God's commands is evidence that He dwells with us. For if He was not with us and in us, we could not keep God's commands. That's why obedience is evidence of a life that is changed. Because it is impossible outside of Christ. How can we know that Jesus abides with us? Well, John says that we draw a conclusion based on facts. He says, and this we, and by this we know. And again here, the word for know has the connotation of having a group of facts before you and understanding them to get the bigger picture. We know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given to us. You see, by this, by keeping His commandments, we look for the work of the Spirit in our lives. And that evidence is very familiar to us. Evidence of the Spirit being in our lives is that we are enabled to believe. Evidence of the Spirit dwelling within us is our love for the brothers. That takes us immediately back a few verses, exactly to what John says we are to do. Evidence of these things is the Spirit at work. And this takes us full circle then, doesn't it? It explains how we can be assured. When we see these things in our lives, we can know that we have the Spirit. And in having the Spirit, we can be reassured of our relationship with God. You see, the obedience that God commands of us and grants to us by the power of the Spirit and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ is a gracious blessing to us. For it allows us to put aside doubt, to have some certainty, to know that God cares for us and is in relationship with us and that by His Spirit He is at work in us. 
Assurance is not of the essence of faith. Faith might be dim and flickering and yet save. But don't you want to live the kind of Christian life that isn't tentative? Don't you want to live the Christian life with reckless, holy abandon, completely dependent upon your Heavenly Father? John tells you this is possible. It's possible in a very practical way. This is the goal and hope of the Christian life. To be more and more like Jesus Christ. To obey as He has obeyed. To pray as He prayed. To work as He worked. This is how we can be assured that we are united with Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we ask this evening that you would make us aware of our need of your grace and of your provision in your word and by your spirit. Lord, there is none like you. You command, and then you equip, you direct, and then, O oh Lord, you supply. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for calling us to yourself. And we pray even now, O oh Lord, that you would make us a people who live with holy recklessness, leaning entirely upon you, seeking your will. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.